Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey friends, I'm really excited to share today's interview with you because not only is it a great story, which it is, but because our guest is involved with helping people in the current conflict in Ukraine, and we're going to give you a way to make a material difference. But we'll get there in a minute. First, some of you may already know Rain Dove from their popular Instagram account, Rain Dove Model or from their work on the fashion runway as a gender-bending model. My connection with Rain is a bit more immediate. We went to the same high school. I graduated about 15 years before Rain did, but we both had the same favorite teacher, and she's the one who connected us. And you'll hear a little bit about that when we start talking. In 2017, when I was traveling around the country, I was still working for our hometown newspaper, doing interviews with people wherever I traveled who were doing interesting things. When I arrived in New York City, Rain invited me to visit their apartment, and we sat and talked for a couple of hours. Rain opened me to a lot of new ideas during that first conversation. And I'm still really partial to that article. So I'm going to link to it in the show notes if you'd like to read it. Even though Rain was appearing at the time on fashion runways and even worked with Italian Vogue, Rain was more excited about this article than anything else, because when you appear as a celebrity in your hometown newspaper, that's when you know you've really made it. (laughs) We recorded this interview in January 2022, before Russia invaded Ukraine, so we don't talk about that situation at all. Rain was working on several projects at the time that you'll hear mentioned, but all of that attention and energy got redirected almost immediately upon the invasion. For the past eight weeks, Rain has been working around the clock, helping vulnerable and marginalized people get over the border to safety. Rain has built a team of a couple hundred volunteers, has raised a couple hundred thousand dollars in small donations, and has evacuated over 3,000 transgender, elderly, BIPOC, queer, disabled, and other at-risk people to get them to safety. Their work has been verified by CNN, the BBC, Vice, The Guardian, etc., Being queer or transgender in Ukraine is still really difficult. Meanwhile, Putin 
has called gender fluidity a crime against humanity and equated homosexuality with pedophilia. So Russia's not going to be any better. Getting the queer and trans community out of the danger zone has taken on extra importance. Rain and their team use donations to buy bus tickets, find temporary housing, rides, and literally walk trans people over the border. Because when your gender expression doesn't match the letter on your passport, it can cause a lot of problems, including refusal to let people cross the border. Watching this rescue mission unfold in Rain's Instagram stories has been nothing short of miraculous and has also been kind of the one bright spot for me. Donating money to their efforts has been the one small way I felt able to positively affect the devastation we're seeing. At first, they were doing all of this as a loose network of individuals and taking small donations through PayPal. In March, they organized into a grassroots organization called SafeBow, S-A-F-E-B-O-W. You can find them now online at safebow.org. That link is in the show notes on the app you're listening on now. Please take a few minutes to visit their site and donate some money or some time. They're still looking for people to make phone calls, do research, be a translator, and lots of other tasks. You don't need a specific skill set to volunteer, so please consider lending a hand. Okay, now let's get back to Rain. Rain is 32 years old and white. You'll hear that Rain speaks differently than many people because Rain eschews most types of categorization. When I asked what their gender identity is and what pronouns they use, they said, I am I. You can call me with whatever language feels comfortable, but the most respectful thing is to just call me by my name. When I asked what their sexual orientation is, they said, I love who I love, I lust who I lust, and I fuck who I fuck consensually. Their preferred relationship dynamic is open and communicative and tailored to the people who are in it at the time. Rain is partnered, grew up in a Christian home, and describes their body as tall and moderately muscular. And one more thing before we finally get to the interview. As you'll hear in the second half of this conversation, Rain has had several high-profile relationships and scandals. You can find news coverage of those people and events, but I only dug into them to the extent that they're relevant to Rain's sex life. I'm not in the business of trying to get gossip or tea on famous people, especially not without their consent. Rain has a cat and a partner who were in and out during taping, so you'll hear some extraneous noises. And now, with all of that introduction stuff done, I'm so pleased to introduce Rain. Rain, thank you so much for joining me today. I am thrilled for so many reasons to have you. So people know how this came to be. Uh, you and I happened to go to the same high school at very different times, mm-hmm. uh, but we had the same favorite teacher. 
At least that's that was true when we first met a couple of years ago. We were both grooving on Mrs. Kelly. Um, that's right. That's right. Mrs. Mrs. Kelly is so cool. <laughs> yes. Really hard on me, but really fair and really good. Yeah. She was really instrumental in helping me realize that it was okay to be smart, um, which is a big yeah. deal. Yeah, a hundred percent. The yeah. uh Mrs. Kelly is now that I reflect on it, hardcore Professor McGonagall vibes. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh that's how we came to know each other. And um I first met you a couple of years ago when I interviewed you for our local newspaper. And I've been watching as you have sort of taken the world by storm ever since. <laughs> and I'm just thrilled to be talking with you. So thanks for Thank being you. here. Thanks for having me. I'm really yeah. happy to be with you. And I'm really uh, grateful you're making this podcast. Thanks. So there's lots of stuff I want to talk about, but we always start with the same first question, which is what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Oh, my first memory of sexual pleasure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really grow up in a sexually expressive environment. It was very repressed. But I got a book at a book sale. Uh, I was a huge bookworm. And it was called uh, Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes oh, my God. by Gina Owl. <laughs> and um, there is a character in The Woolly Mammoth Hunters, uh, which is one of the sequels of the, of the, in the series named, uh, John. And I remember reading the sexual scene between, uh, Ayla and John and, and then being like, I didn't understand what was being described, but I would try to visualize it. And then that, that for some reason was very exciting, you know? Um, and I didn't know how to emulate that really for myself, but, I like the idea of what it was, even though I didn't quite understand it. And I think that's my first, my first dip into it was the fantasizing of what is this thing. You know, it's amazing to me how frequently Clan of the pa- Cave Bear has come up in these interviews as people's <laughs> introduction, and it's you know part what? of mine too. <laughs> There's got to be a lot of garage sales out there just starting yeah. this off. <laughs> <laughs> really well written. Yeah, she writes some really kick-ass sex scenes. <laughs> she does. My goodness, they're so good. You just, you know, two sentences and you're already like, wow. Yeah, yeah. How old were you, do you think, when that happened? Uh, I think I was eight or nine. I was very early. I had a very high reading level. Um, and I, because I spent a lot of time alone, didn't have typical television or anything. So books were my escape. And uh I just devoured them. And I, I loved I loved that series. The Valley of Horses was also a really great one. A lot of great scenes in that. Um, but yeah, they were the first one. And was there a point in there when you were reading the books and you thought, I'm going to touch myself? Like, was masturbation part of that experience for you? No, bizarrely not. I just like the idea of it. I liked, um, I, when I was younger, I used to like the idea of being like, uh, restrained or the idea of being like in places of extreme peril, you know, really vulnerable and that you'd have to work your way out. And then later on in life, that became incredibly true. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, oh okay. Um, uh, but uh, I think that the first time I, I think I ever like did anything physically, we went to a fair in Rhode Island and I was with my great grandparent uh, who's, 
incredibly Catholic and her uh, husband, my Pepe was incredibly Catholic and they took me to like this fair and I won my selection of whatever toys. And I chose a pair of like the child play, like uh, metal handcuffs. <laughs> um, and I was just like practicing using them and how they felt. And then um, I think uh, just by happenstance, I felt like the metal against my clit and I was like, Whoa. Oh, Hey, what is yeah. that? Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a very kinky young kid. Um, and and uh, that, I think that just, that didn't really lead to any to as- masturbation. There wasn't really the idea of like, what is coming? What is an orgasm? What is that stuff that there wasn't really an end goal. There was just a feel good, I think, mm. um, you know, and then of course, I think a lot of people graduate uh, as I did onto like stuffed animals and things like that, or playing roughhouse on like the uh, at school and like intentionally letting yourself get tackled because <laughs> 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 it would be nice. You know, um, I even have a, I have one great memory that is quite a wild one when Titanic came out you remember the movie Titanic. Yeah. And my parents made me go get popcorn for the awful, awful sex scene in the car, you know, <laughs> um, but I always wanted to be Jack. You know, I thought Jack was great. And I remember uh, redoing this scene on the playground with these kids, you know, some other girls in my class, and I was Jack. And this other girl was Rose. And uh, they handcuffed me to the tether pole, uh, tether ball oh, pole. Wow. Uh, but unfortunately, they were real handcuffs. Uh, and they had to call the parents of that <gasps> child to come with the key to get me out. <laughs> oh, my God. How and they I have sat their hands there on like, real handcuffs. <laughs> uh, their parent, I, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I was so young. I moved to schools a lot, but I think I'm not going to screw myself on this one. But I think their parents had something to do in law enforcement of some kind. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was this big deal. I had to sit. I had to sit outside with the this tetherball <laughs> pole for like over an hour, waiting for this parent to come. You know, was there anything about that? Like, was it just a um, an uncomfortable experience or was there something titillating about that for oh, you? Oh yeah. It was totally, the humiliation it was of it and all. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even the hu- humiliation that the, the aftermath of it was like, you know, waiting. So embarrassing, you know, yeah. parents being like, what are you guys playing? And we're like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you're that young, you feel very that much like you're trying to be an adult and you feel like adults don't really know what they're doing and you're emulating a lot of things. And, the idea of forbidden love and the idea of things that I can't have, that was like really exciting to me. And also I grew up in a a household in which I had, um, unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of people experience this in rural communities, but I had a parent who was very dependent on alcohol. Uh, We have a much better relationship now, but they, they still are very dependent on alcohol. And they were a very, intense person, I I would say probably violently. So, so there, I think sometimes when we have these fantasies of being restrained and stuff, but on our terms, it's a weird reclamation or trying to make sense of things that have happened to us as, as younger individuals or trying to put a purpose to it. Like, you know, I always like the idea of being like for bravery. (laughs) So when you're (laughs) Jack, you know, and the Titanic, he's a noble guy, you know? Yeah. And uh, being handcuffed up as Jack, on, and, and there's and your lover comes, you know, and, to try to save you. <laughs> and, you know, it's just there's this whole thing of um, 
you know, you're really doing a parallel to your own life and like, you know, trying to make sense of what you're surviving through. And I, I think I derived a lot of pleasure in thinking that maybe it was for some reason. Yeah. So one of the things that people know you for is your gender play. I don't know exactly what the right term would be that you use for it. How do you describe what you do? Well, you used to use the term gender capitalism. Oh, right. Which is simply to be a gender capitalist. It's really simple. You look at the world and you see that the world has turned itself into a place in which being perceived as a specific sex or gender may oftentimes get you different types of treatment. And no one person is um, treated wholly and truly to one experience. It's usually tipped in one direction or another based off from what somebody is perceived to be. And gender capitalist is a person who looks at the most beneficial paths in life and emulates the gender or sex experience that they need to in order to get the best out of the people that are around them. Now, I don't do that anymore. Occasionally I do when I travel to really dangerous places, but now I'm pretty good at telling people, I don't think you're treating me fairly or why is that Mm -hmm. priced this way? Mm -hmm. Um, However, my life of having to uh, emulate a lot of different gender expressions has led to a non-queer, non-trans exploration for a lot of people, something very relatable, which is that one of the first divisions we experience at birth and probably one of the first ones ever verbalized is it's a boy or it's a girl. Mm -hmm. The utterance of that particular identity is not just about your genitals. It's about your future and about what people believe you deserve and where you stand in life. And so my work is about around getting people to reset that standard and question the world around them and say, am I really getting the best out of the beings around me? Or am I getting cheated in some kind of a sense? I do that through a lot of different forms, a lot of different activism based forms. But in the modeling world, I model as what we would be perceived as both male and female, masculine and feminine, and everything in between. In reality, in my mind, while I respect people's gender identities and I do use whatever people want me to call them by because that is the right thing to do, in my opinion, I don't see the world as male or female. I see it as many beings are a being who are far more complex than the simplistic way in which we have described them. And I think that in the era of information and this ability to store the information, I think we can do a lot better than what we've done. I love that. So going back to your childhood experience, did you experience yourself as a little girl or was there already some reckoning in your mind around this? Well, I don't know if I was ever little. I've always been really tall. (laughs) I was six foot tall in sixth grade. Wow. (laughs) I think um, I have a lot of pride in the being that I've been, even when I haven't been a great being to be around. I'm proud that this journey has led me to where I am now. As a child, I was definitely not one of the pretty girls, and I had to reconcile with that. But at a young age, I wasn't casting aside the term female or the term girl because I didn't really think that was an option. So I looked at what kind of girl am I? I determined maybe I was like Trinity from the matrix, you know, or Alice from resident evil, or uh, maybe I was just Annie Oakley. I was that kind of very uh, 
maybe I wasn't going to survive well in this life, but give me an apocalypse and a shotgun. I'll take my German shepherd and my <laughs> motorcycle down the road and I'll live just fine. I always felt like I was destined to be alone, but powerful. And that I was always destined to be kind of in a space where um, I'm living a life of service to other people because I have, I have muscles and height and grit and can do attitude. Um, <laughs> this is at the time, you know, that may sound really narcissistic or egotistical to some people, but if I didn't believe in myself that that was my purpose, I don't think I would have chosen to live. It was a very mm -hmm. difficult time to feel like for the rest of your life, you're doomed to be the one who doesn't quite cut it. The one who always has to fight for themselves. I'm not the girl who's going to get swept off their feet next door. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to fulfill what society has deemed to be like the female fantasy, the pretty woman ideology. Um, and over time, I wanted a lot of other people who had an F on the birth certificate to feel that that F wasn't their definition, that there's something for them beyond this expectation of what that represented. Yeah. So at what point did you engage with another person in a romantic or sensual or sexual way? Um, well, uh, I definitely, I didn't realize it at the point, but I definitely had a crush on this person who identifies as female, uh, uh, and who is AFAB, uh, named Katie when I was in elementary school. I was so jealous of anyone who tried to take them away and be with their friend, and, <laughs> you know. Um, but actually my first romantic partner was a, uh, an individual named Roy who left me for my best friend in the world named Sheila. And the two oh, of no. them are together to this day and they have a child and everything. So good choice. <laughs> are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace, that's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. 
For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. I, I would always say no sex before marriage. But it's just genuinely, I did not want to have sex with this person because while my first sexual fantasies may have been around this book where there was penetrative things involved, um, I realized I wasn't really comfortable. At, I wasn't really interested in penises throughout my high school years. Uh, part of that could be tied to the fact that my mother and my grandmother and my great grandmother all had children when they were my mom had me when she was 18 or 19. My grandmother as well had a young age. So there's a history. And I think I was trying to break that cycle. But also, I just genuinely was like, I don't want to be used. I'm not your toy. I, you know, I, I that Trinity yeah. complex, you know, that, <laughs> that independence <laughs> complex. Um, and Roy for me was more about the fact I wanted, it was about winning a game. I wanted to have him. So I could, like everybody wanted to be with Roy. And I was like, okay, well, if everybody wants this and I have this, then this is a thing that's good. And we had a lot of fun. We had so much fun and we had zero sex. <laughs> Did So what, when you say sex, are you saying penetrative, like PIV, penis and vagina? And were there other things that you did do or did you not do anything physical? Nothing. We made out, we held hands. They wanted to like, get, like be in like vigorous, full on clothing, like, you know, uh, kind of situation. And I just would always be like, no, no, no sex before marriage, no sex before marriage. You know, um, I was pretty dead set. I was also like a, a born again Christian at that time period. My parents had just divorced and I was living with my mother at the time. And I think uh, for me, I also was trying to live a legacy. Uh, and then my second partner was a person uh, named Olivia, who was an extreme Christian. And I would stay over at her place and then she'd, she'd kiss me while I was sleeping. Oh. And it's kind of creepy, but I knew I was awake, but I would pretend I was asleep. And then one day oh, she wow. admitted it to me and I was like, what? How dare you? And I was a mess. I, we had to call my friend. I was like, I don't know if I can live with this. And, and like, I was like upset because of, I thought this was going to end the only family I had, which was with the church at the time I was mm. staying with this church. And, um, did you enjoy it when she kissed you? Oh yeah, it was great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then my friend came over and was like, this isn't a big deal. Like, um, you know, God, God would be fine with this. And, uh, so I dated this girl, but I needed a cover date. I needed someone to like be a decoy. So I had mm -hmm. a friend, uh, their name was Kelsey. He and I dated for a, like for a year or two. And he also had a boyfriend at the time. And I had a girlfriend at the time. And we both were respectful of each other having side partners. While we actually had an amazing, really fun relationship. And his mother is a was a sex therapist. And she would always be like, okay, well, here's all the things in case you guys want to have sex. And wow. in that relationship too, I was also like, no sex before marriage. I did we didn't do anything. We would snuggle, we would make out, we would like wrestle a lot, but nothing, no orgasms, nothing sexual happened, nothing, nobody touched anyone in their, in, in any regions, not even like breasts, you know, it was like still very play school kind of mm -hmm. dynamic. 
And I, I love that person. They were such an amazing human being. How old were you? Was this still in high school? Yes, that would have been my junior year of high school. So you were already engaging in some polyamorous <laughs> yeah. dynamics in high yeah. school. Yeah, wow. yeah. And I, it was weird because it was so easy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, in my senior year, they went off to college. And I was still in high school. And so they would tell me about their great dates with Colin. And I was just like, yeah, go for it. Mm. I think in my heart, I knew I was never going to be with them. So that made it a lot easier. Um, we weren't building a life together. But over time, they they did want to have a more of a life building kind of space. They did talk about maybe marriage, doing other things. You know, you're young and it, it just seems like something you do. And um, I was not interested um, at that point. I was fully into exploring dynamics with other people who identified as female at that time um, because I wanted to, I wanted to know that I could. And so when Olivia and I didn't work out, I ended up dating another person who identified as a lesbian and I wasn't in a relationship I really wanted to be in. It was not a consensual relationship. Meaning what? How did um, well, I met them on, I went on plenty of fish to explore my queerness and just to kind of figure out like, you know, with Olivia, it was great, but there's once again, I won't give too many details about that because I don't have that person's consent, I think to speak freely and they live in a, still in a very conservative environment, but I wanted to explore because there were a lot of unanswered questions about my sexuality and identity. And so like many people at the time, I went on plenty of fish and I would, I would have these pen pals and talk to people and explore different fantasies and stuff. And with this other person that I dated, I didn't intend on dating them. I just was asking them questions. And then they expressed that they were in a really tough space financially. And they were a fat black queer individual from Chicago. And they felt like their intersectionalities were going to impede their ability to ever get ahead in life. At the time, I really felt like I was doing something good. But if I reflect on it with knowledge that I have today, I'd realize that my engagement with them was in a white savior capacity, which I'm embarrassed Mm -hmm. by. But Mm -hmm. at the time, I was like, Vermont gives a lot of college education grants to black individuals because they really want to encourage the diversity that the state champions but doesn't have much of. And I was like, why don't you come out here and I will work hard. I will get you a bus ticket. You can stay at my place with my mom and we'll get you enrolled into some colleges. And if something accepts you, you can go to school here and start your life over. And she got on a bus and she came out to Vermont. And then she realized I wasn't out to my mom. And then she's like, I'm in love with you. And I'm like, I'm not in love with you. And then she was like, well, I want you to give it a shot because I think you would really like a dynamic with me. And she basically said, if I didn't give her a chance and date her, she would tell my mom that I was queer. And oh shit, I didn't want my mom to know uh, because there was a lot of interpersonal things. So I ended up dating this person and having sex with this person that I, I think there were a lot of wonderful qualities about them, but it wasn't very good. It was a bad situation. And I feel bad because um, I also was not able to give them what they wanted from me, which is, you know, we're both very young and they wanted me to be their forever person. And mm-hmm. from the beginning, I was not interested in being that person with them. Was that your first experience of the kind of interaction that would lead to an orgasm? Yeah, yeah. They were my <laughs> first sexual experience. It, I would yeah. say it's so bizarre because you look back at it and it's like, it's not like it, it wasn't a rape situation, but it was very 
interesting and coercive in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And it's not their fault because I could have said no at any point, but I really did feel terrified of like them telling my parents, you know. Yeah, well, that's definitely coercive. That is kind of the definition of coercion. (laughs) Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you go back and you look at it and you're like, okay, this is definitely a toxic, unhealthy space. I held a lot more power than I thought about or, or gave myself credit for in that in that time. I was the one whose name was on the apartment when we finally did get an apartment space. I was the one who was bringing in pretty much all, I worked three jobs and this other individual was unfortunately not able to stay employed because they just needed support in other ways. And, and I don't blame them for that. That happens. It's hard because I think another thing is like the, I'm going to bring up the white savior element of things. Mm-hmm. See, this is my first time ever meeting and engaging with a black person in my life. And I felt like if you're from a marginalized community, whether it be black or uh, with disability or with, um, with being queer or whatever, that we can't possibly take advantage of or hurt each other because as marginalized people, we are on the bottom rung. And so I felt like if I rejected this individual, I was racist. If I, set boundaries with this person or said no, then that was my racism showing that if I, you know, so there was a lot of things to unpack there. And um, what I've learned a lot from other experiences, uh, because I went on a, you know, my primary dating history has been with uh, BIPOC individuals is from dating other partners and speaking with other people that sometimes dynamics are just unhealthy and it doesn't, the intersectionalities. They, there's trauma and there's things in there, but that it's not necessarily racist to say no to somebody. Mm-hmm. So for me, like it's, it's even hard for me to talk about it with you. Like it, it's hard, like the context of it, you know, I, I'm in a very different place as a person now. So I'm just trying to be honest about where I was at that period of time. Yeah. I genuinely was like, if I leave this person, I'm leaving a black person in Burlington by themselves um, with no money and no credit. And like, I can't kick them out of the house. They have nowhere to go. I, I brought them out here and I can't expect this person to try to work through, like they got fired from their job at working at UVM because they had a, uh, they threw a frying pan at someone's head, like just engaging with someone, you know, that comes from their own trauma and their own history. But I couldn't even ask them to like, not, I couldn't be like, Hey, can you go try to get another job? I couldn't ask that because I was conditioned to think like you, these are selfish and wrong things to ask in people. Um, and in a weird way, my actions towards them were racist because I didn't expect the same of them, of other people. I didn't look at them as an individual. I looked at them as an idea and an idea that I wanted to treat with dignity and care, but I overcompensated. And it, mm. and it led to us being in a mutually toxic environment. And it's, it, yeah, it's hard. I, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone about that dynamic in a public sphere. That's a very different, diff, it's a very difficult one. Um, yeah. And it didn't set me up for success with dating in the future. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, that story reminds me a bit of one of my own experiences, totally different details, of course, but that I was involved with another woman and I believe that we were both really good people, but together we were toxic. Mm. Uh, the The analogy I use is like Coke and Mentos. Like Coke is fine and Mentos are fine. Mm-hmm. And they're both fairly, you know, non-aggressive, but you put them together 
and some really unfortunate interactions happen. They do. Actually, after that dynamic with that individual, I was not a healthy person to be in a relationship with because I hadn't processed childhood trauma, poverty trauma, and the trauma of having that kind of non-consensual sexual dynamic. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard when you're six foot tall and you're dominated by someone who's like five foot four. And, you know, it's a psychological domination. So you look at your physical body and you're like, how could I... Yeah. Why did I, I had so much power. I don't understand. I must have wanted this. Right. Um, and so, yeah, when I, I did a confessional video when I was 30, I put it out on YouTube about all the people I've cheated on and people were really upset about hearing that list. Cause they would think that I would be a really healthy person to date. But in my early to mid twenties, I was a scoundrel. I really was not great. <laughs> I wish I were better. I wish I could say it was great, but I wasn't. <laughs> so, You've talked about some experiences where sex was not on the table because you wait until marriage. And then you've talked about some coercive sexual experiences or sexuality inside a coercive relationship. Mm-hmm. What was your first really great sexual experience? Oh, <laughs> this one's easy. <laughs> um, so I used to work doing conservation corps work. I did Vermont Youth Conservation Corps. We also worked for the Rocky Mountain Youth Corps doing like thinning out. Uh, I worked on a SAW team doing like wildfire prevention, which is not the same as wildfire fighting. Um, preventing wildfires by doing control burns and cutting down dead, dead things. And while I was there, I made a pen pal who was this amazing Indian Muslim queer super confident in who they were kind of person from a very conservative family that really, really, really was against those kinds of ideologies. And when I went out to San Francisco to explore my identity and I was living in my car, I got to meet them in person. I didn't know what they looked like because back then we met on Craigslist, Women for Women. And uh, I didn't know what they looked like really. And I was standing in the square where they told me to wait. And I, when I saw this person walking up, I knew it was them. I knew it. Ah, oh, it was like, ah, like the, they were just so <laughs> hot. Oh my gosh. Like so sexy. I was like, Oh my gosh. I could see a future. And we, uh, we spent all day and night just like having a great time and exploring the world. And then, um, I didn't want to tell them that I was homeless because I didn't really feel like that was sexy information at the time. And I intended on getting an apartment to stay in soon. So I was like, I I went to their place and they snuck me in through their window like we were kids. (laughs) And um, yeah, we had just like really, really basic oral sex. I had no idea what I was doing. How old were you at this point? I was 20, maybe 21, somewhere in that I think Mm -hmm. 20. And we had very basic oral sex. It was a very short-lived, fast and furious situation. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and then I was like, this is the one, you know. <laughs> In the last episode, I shared with you how I was drooling over the erotic spanking course in the Beducated app. Well, this week I've been exploring further and I can't believe how good these courses are. So I'm talking about Beducated, 
a platform that provides on-demand courses in all sorts of categories. Communication, kink, anal sex, penis massage, vulva massage, etc. There's a huge library of courses that teach techniques on live models. So you're not left trying to interpret a somewhat ambiguous line drawing to figure out how something works on an actual body. Today, I've been watching the Penis Massage Course by Libby Shepard. I got excited about this because my partner has been having a hard time for the last few weeks, and I want to spend some time nurturing him. And this seems like a great way to start. The penis massage lessons include video demonstrations of massaging the perineum, the pelvis, the shaft, the tip, and the balls. Then there's a full penis massage session so you can see it all put together. This is what I've been waiting for, to see these things demonstrated on a live body rather than trying to interpolate something from a banana to an actual penis. And sometime, a few weeks from now, when my partner is ready to reciprocate, you better believe I'm going to give him the vulva and vagina massage lesson to do on me. Those videos include instructions on massaging the pelvis, the vulva, the labial lips, the clitoris, and internal massage, plus a full vulva and vagina massage demonstration. So if all of this sounds good to you, grab a free trial to the Beducated platform, which gives you access to a huge library of courses. When you sign up through my link with the coupon code GOODGIRLSTALK, you'll get 65% off the yearly pass, and that discount will be locked in for life, not just for the first year, but forever. So level up your love life and join Beducated for just $9.99 a month. Click the link in the description of this episode and use the coupon code GOODGIRLSTALK. Let's get Beducated! often ask me how they can discover their turn-ons if they've never thought about it before. You've probably heard me recommend watching sexy scenes in TV or movies or reading erotica. And now there's another option that I think has them all beat. Audio erotica. You can listen to an ever-expanding library of erotic stories on your phone through the Dipsy app. Every story is a fully immersive radio play where you get to hear the characters flirt, dirty talk, have consent conversations, work each other up, and yes, orgasm. If you're learning about your turn-ons, here's my recommendation. Click the search button and look up the activities you're curious about. Anal, BDSM, camping, dominance, edging, and the rest of your ABCs. The other day, I was listening to episode one of a series called The Cellar that includes the tags coworker, rough and wild, intense language, and in public. I was really getting into the hotness of the scene when the woman pleaded, I need you inside me. And the guy said, have you been tested? She replied, last week, you? This week all good. And she gasped, good, I just need you inside me. 
That's one of the many things I love about Dipsy. They take care to demonstrate safety protocols and consent conversations in ways that make them feel accessible and so much less scary. Dipsy releases new content every week, including the next episode in the series, The Seller, which I'm so excited for. So there are constantly new fantasies for you to explore. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash goodgirls. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash goodgirls. That link is in the show notes. So go to dipsystories.com slash good girls. I think my dynamic with Supreet was really important because when they did find out I was homeless, because I used to be a serial, you know, I wasn't a great human being with telling the truth and stuff. I didn't want people to know I was homeless. I'd lie at my employment. I lied to everyone. Like why I'm late. Well, it's because I couldn't afford the train ticket. So I'd get detained if I tried to jump the turnstiles and get on BART. And I'd lie about where I lived. And I just didn't want people to know the me that was me because the me that was me was broke and alone and low hygiene. <laughs> and um, that just didn't seem appealing. Who'd want to hire somebody that unstable? Who'd want to date somebody who is that unstable? Who'd want to be friends with somebody who is that unstable? So we ended up dating long enough that the truth came out about where I was living and what I was doing. And we actually had sex in my car and somebody drove by with a bicycle and like circled the car and was like, it's okay. Oh. I do it too, me ha And like drove away. <laughs> um, it was something I remember like pretty vividly like laughing about for a while, but I know that's so silly. So why is sex in the car is such a formative thing, but it was because this person, this is where I was living. This was me at one of the lowest points of my life. And this person still found me sexually desirable and still wanted to engage with me. And yeah, it's probably a little gross and everything, but, um, no. at, you know, hygienic, <laughs> hygienically in the space, <laughs> but it was very important because it made me realize that like I can be desirable no matter where I am in my life, as long as I'm open and, and clear and honest with people. Mm-hmm. Um, our relationship didn't end up working out we had just moved in and they just left. So that was tough. Um, another formative relationship, uh, would have been, Oh, I had an amazing, I had never had like a one-off fling before. I'd never done that. When I was like 23, I had an amazing fling with this person who was like maybe like eight years older than me. They were like a performance artist. One of those ones that makes like headdresses for a living. And they were a Leo and they were tall and gorgeous and blonde (laughs) and, and powerful. And, um, And I'd never been in a space where I just had sex once. And then that was it. We had, I had put together their Ikea furniture (laughs) and they wanted sex. And I was like, okay. And that was really wonderful. Another thing is that I lived in a bordello for a while. Um, Really? Yes, I did. Um, I lived at this place called Jack London George's and I was, I, I just was cooking for them. And I, was asked if I wanted to do cooking for swinger Saturdays, but I didn't know what swinging was. I thought it was swing dancing. So Mm. when I showed up, I discovered it was something very different. (laughs) And um, I got to see a lot of people engaging in really unique dynamics, some which were bought and paid for, and some of which were dynamics that people had had for a long time. And they were inviting a third in. And that was really special. 
And I think I had a, I, I've had so many dynamics. I, I had another one with a person and at the time she was very famous and I was very unknown. I was a transient person in New York city and um, uh, she had surgery on her nose and she had two big black circles and she didn't want anyone to see her with black eyes out in public. So I took her camping uh, so that she could just be away from people. And we went into the forest and I was like, one rule, we're not going to talk for the next three days. We're going to live off the land. And the two of us had the most amazing silent sex in the forest. Wow. We stole those boat in the morning one morning we like make coffee on the fire and then stole somebody's boat from like their quiet closed little summer home and floated out in the middle of this pond and just um i i gave them oral sex and was not receiving at the time but it was amazing uh i would say one of the difficult things about being mask presenting is that a lot of my dynamics, I have not really been much of a recipient of sexual experiences. I've been more of a provider of. A lot of the people I tend to date tend to be societally deemed as very femme, and so they, they come with a lot of those traits. A lot of people who have things like endometriosis and or trauma that impedes them from wanting certain experiences. But I really in, still enjoy sex with them because um, – I like being in a providership or service based thing. I don't feel like I'm losing out in a sexual dynamic. I like being able to create something that nobody else can create for this person, which is a completely unapologetic safe space for them to just ask for what they want and not feel like they have to reciprocate or they have to do anything. But this led to me not necessarily being the most loyal of partners because mm -hmm. I still wanted something, but I just didn't want to demand it from, from that person. That was something I had to work through, but it is something that uh, has been a big theme in my life is building a life with someone who can't really reciprocate sexually, mm -hmm. but feeling like a pillar in their life because it would be very difficult for them to find a person that they feel safe with to give them the sexual experience that they, that they do want. Um, or maybe it's not difficult for them to find, but it, they feel like it's difficult to find it. Do you ever miss receiving? Like, is that something that you wish you got more of? Um, well, I've been in different dynamics, some of which I receive more than others. But I mean, sometimes I've had like that feeling where like I want to be in a more mutual dynamic. But in a weird way, I think there's some kind of nobility that comes behind AFAB people who are mask presenting or butch identifying in the sense that they don't want to be like their fathers and they don't want to be like the abusers out there. And they feel a kinship towards what it means to be abused as someone with an F on their birth certificate. And so they are, they try to be the epitome of what could or should be. And oftentimes I think it's a very common thing that butcher mask presenting um, AFAB people are very service oriented in sex and aren't necessarily like, no, this is what I want because they don't want the other person to feel pressured into it. I have had a couple of partners in my life that have been like, woo woo, like they are down. <laughs> and they enjoy it, which is like a really, really important thing. Um, I dated this amazing Jewish photographer. They were the best person in my life. And I just, I, I had a really great time with them, but I also was not ready for someone who was as confrontational as they were. They they weren't a bad confrontational, but they were very confident who they were. And they were like, mm -hmm. tell me what you want. Like, um, why aren't you doing this? I want to challenge you more. And them challenging me to be a better person 
terrified me. So our relationship didn't work out because I didn't, I wanted to sit in my comfortable little do nothing hole. And they were like, you got to get out of the hole. And I was like, no, go away. So they did. (laughs) (laughs) But um, they were very like, they were a very amazing reciprocal partner. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, you know, have been in some dynamics with older individuals as well. Back in my, uh, I was like 23 or 24 uh, I trained to be a dominatrix so that I could work at the L- uh, Emeryville Gates. Um, I'm really proud of that training, and I have no shame around it. And I have a lot of respect for not just sex workers, but sex therapists and people who who work in that field. Because of that reputation, though, um, I have dated a few people over the past couple of years where it's not about me being mask presenting, but because of the reputation of having trained in those fields. I get into dynamics with people where they expect that our relationship will be a BDSM relationship. And I, yeah. I don't necessarily want that relationship out of that individual, you know, mm-hmm. and that's been really challenging as well. Yeah. So you have been in several high profile relationships or relationships with <laughs> high profile people. Yeah. <laughs> How does that affect your experience of being in a relationship, knowing sort of that the world is watching? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I think that it's different with each person, you know. Um, I had one person that the world was just slamming them at the time, and they were a product of so much trauma that I, I really wanted them to have a good sexual experience. And I took a space of service backseat in there in their life. I was like, I'm going to get them not living in hotels and live, live in an actual apartment. I want them to have a good orgasm where like they don't feel that they have to give me anything in return. I want them to feel like they don't have to be on all the time. And the person was a very fiery individual. And that sexual experience was very interesting because I only ever received sexual reciprocation from them once. And they said, I just want to see what it feels like. And then they were like, no. Oh, wow. And if they, if I wanted to masturbate or something, they were like, could you do that in the other room? Now at the time I was madly in love with them. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Oh, I was so in love with this person. I really thought that they were in love with me too. Uh, and then uh, I found out that uh, they weren't queer in the least. And they had been just trying to get out of a scandal in which they had been called transphobic at the beginning of our dynamic. Mm. But they were happy to receive sexual experiences. And they really enjoyed those sexual experiences. Uh, they definitely did not lie about that. They even talked about it with friends and stuff. About <laughs> sexual. I only know because I ran their social media for them, not not because uh, I was snooping. It's just stuff pops yeah. up. I wasn't a snooper, you know. Um Another person I dated that was higher profile was a really bad situation. They were much older than me. And also they were the kind of person that wanted to be able to touch me when they wanted to touch me. And they wanted me to engage with them when I engage with them. And um, it was not a dynamic that I was comfortable in. And it, and um, at the same time, they had a lot of power over my career and a lot of power over my partner at the time's career. And they were like, you'll never work again. Like I own three different press things. You'll never work again. And wow. to this day, my career is still impacted by having been engaging with that person. But sex with someone and it's coercive is never really very fun. Um, yeah. And with Kate, oh my gosh, that I think Kate was the most 
enjoyable, even though she broke my heart and left me for her plastic surgeon that fixed her nose in the first place. Oh my goodness. And it's still with that person, by the way, uh-huh. you can look it up. Kate's still with that person. That person, even though it didn't work out, was like the love of my life for sure. At the time, oh my gosh, to this day, I think I wish I could still be good friends with them. We had such an amazing time. Um, and sex in that situation was really fun and playful because they were coming from like an Amish community where they couldn't explore this side. And this was a moment in their life where they were curious about their sexuality and they were just exploring it through me. And they're also exploring orgasms and interesting things in their body that they hadn't really had. And foreplay and oral sex. I mean, there were so many things. And I think that was the best one. And then later on, uh, uh, their career got in the way of what they wanted to do. Um, and also, maybe they just weren't that into me. It's fine. <laughs> you know? Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, If you have the resources to support the sex-positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing. There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. So let's talk for a minute about your current relationship and, yeah, yeah. you know, recognizing that there may be some privacy uh, boundaries here, but what is your relationship with your current partner like? Um, my relationship with my current partner is amazing. I think the pandemic has been one of the worst things to happen to this planet and also one of the best things to happen to my personal 
growth Mm -hmm. as a being. This person was the first person I've ever dated that I was friends with first. Mm -hmm. I developed a friendship with them for over a year. Um, We were collaborators and content creators, and I got to admire them as a being. And they made the first move. I didn't make the first move, which happens a lot. Quite, I'm actually quite a shy person, but the fact that they made the first move makes me feel even better as a being. Um, and we've been through so much. We've lived in favelas in Colombia, shooting documentaries with indigenous people in the desert. And, you know, we've been uh, on red carpets together and in some of the most exclusive places on the planet, like uh, in the Maldives and things like that. We started out living in a, like when we finally did decide to live together, we started out living in a, like we shared a single bedroom in government housing um, and it was so tiny and we worked our way up to being able to have our own place and it has, has everything that we want as like people. (laughs) Um, And most importantly in 2019, I had one of the toughest moments of my life. Saturn return came around and just slapped me to the ground. It was like, Mm -hmm. you need to be humble. And essentially everything that wasn't good about, my past came to the public eye and I got slammed. It, it was intense. Yeah. And it was important that that happened. It was very important that that happened. But Kelsey stuck with me through that. She stuck with me through that when I was ranting and raving and wanting to commit suicide and I didn't want to exist anymore. She still wanted to have sex with me. She still wanted to hold me and love me and kiss me and be seen with me. And I'm like, if she can be with me during that period of my life where I was learning a lot of lessons you know, I don't know if anyone could, I was, I'm really grateful. And ever since that moment, I'm like, I'm going to be a better person for myself, for the world, for this person. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cry. <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And we have a, we have a really clear communication in our dynamic. Um, Kelsey is demisexual. Um, and so, you know, how people say a healthy dynamic is one that's having sex three or four times a week. No. Oh. Bullshit. I think it's bullshit. <laughs> um, we have sex when we want to have sex. Yeah. And sometimes it's frequent and sometimes it's not. But there's there's no shaming. There's like if a person wants to like masturbate while the other person is like – if the other person's like, I'm, I'm not into it tonight. Yeah. The other person literally can masturbate right next to the person without it being like, oh, God, can you take that into the other room? Or like, don't. Like, it's not – it just is like people are free to live as they want to. And um, also both of us are working through trauma with previous partners, but we're, we still have a lot to explore in our dynamics sexually that we haven't explored yet, but we haven't cut off and said, we're not going to explore these things. It's like we take things safely, carefully moment by moment. And as a result, we may not have sex as frequently as, as some couples, but when we do, it's really good sex because it's, mm. it's wanted. It's not placated. It's communicated. Uh, it's, it's clear. People can ask for what they want in the, in the moment. <laughs> and she has just been such a fun partner to explore with. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm really happy for you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think one of the things that you are known for 
in your public platform is the fact that people come and attack you with some regularity. <laughs> yeah. And you have this way, probably way more regularity than anybody knows, but you have this way of turning those conversations around and sharing them so that they become learning experiences and experiences of compassion mm-hmm. for the people who were initially attacking you. Mm-hmm. Where do you find the compassion for that and for those people? Oh, it's really simple. I've spent a lot of time alone, a lot of time. Uh, you know, my transient years lasted about four and a half years of my life. I wasn't male or female or sexually desirable at that point. I was just inconvenient as a being on the planet. And I had to work through a lot of issues and ego and things like that. But during that time period, I developed a lot of habits, lying, stealing, cheating, doing whatever I had to do to try to get myself some kind of stability in love, in life, in career. I wasn't the kind of person that I would recommend other people hang around. Although I did have some good qualities. I'm not going to flog myself too much on that. But I will say, um, while I had a lot of good intentions, I didn't always have great executions. When it comes to how I treat people today, I look at why I am the person I am now and why I'm in a space where I want to give back and I want to love the world and I want to learn. Um, and it's because people at various points in my life, the ones who have gotten through to me are not the ones who slammed me down or screamed at me or held me at arm's length um, while also trying to wring my neck. Uh, the people that really helped me change and evolve as a person were the people who took the time to sit with me and communicate in a way that tries to see me beyond the being I was being in that moment. They looked at my core as a person. They wanted to get to know me. And with every person I see, I know that this may sound a little narcissistic to some people, but it is how I work. As I see myself and a lot of people on this planet, pretty much every person, we share some kind of core thread of truth. And if you keep yourself aligned with that, then at the end of the day, unless you plan on extinguishing that person, then you have to think about your end goal of where you want that person to be, which is where you are. So you have to do the hard work and layer through that individual. But it isn't work that everyone has to do. And it's not better than righteous rage. It's just how I personally work with people. Because if I give up on people, then I'm saying that I as well deserve to be given up on a period of in my life. And sometimes, sometimes conversations, you have to put a pin in them. Because the person isn't ready to move past or through wherever they're in. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, but I will never close a seat off at the table for anyone who wants to sit there, no matter how controversial. And I know that's not a popular way of thinking now, but it is how I feel, and it's the credo I live by. I wish there were more people who lived that way. <laughs> I can understand why is, they don't. Yeah, it's incredibly just humbling and inspiring to watch the way that you talk to people. Like I, one of the things that I say is like, I feel like my, you know, brand or whatever is radical empathy. Mm. And yet I watch what you do. And I think you are the master and I'm still down at like (laughs) rung one. (laughs) Oh no, I fail on so many conversations. I don't, and fail maybe isn't the right word. I, there are a lot of conversations that don't go to where I wish they could go. But that's not on you. No, it isn't. Because the other person has a place in that too. 
Yes. Um, and just because on screen I'm able to say things in a way that is really centered and aligned doesn't mean that behind the screen I'm going, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. punching the air and stuff. <laughs> you know, there have been times where I've just sat there and I've typed and I've retyped and I have actually a dump box of what I wish I could say. And <gasps> oh then gosh. sometimes I'll just write it out and then I say it out loud. I'll just say it out loud so it can be heard. And then I'll go through and I'll be like, now that that has been honored, the immediate need for my rage to be understood. I need to think about this person outside of myself because at the end of the day, I can log off, but the people in their life cannot. Mm. And so I have to think about those people and I have to reach deeper than my own ego. It's not always easy to do because it's not the first instinct at all times. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get yourself a dump box. It's so, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you two final things. One is uh, nipple hair. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about nipple hair. <laughs> because this is something I have dealt with since. I can remember, and I've actually never had anybody mention it before, but you mentioned it before we started recording. So can you tell me about your journey with nipple hair? Oh, yeah, for sure. So like, I am a person who's surprisingly smooth in surprising areas. Like my thighs are like, naturally like smooth, there's nothing going on there. But my like lower legs, they, they could be knitted, I think. And, you know, I got the armpit hair and I got the thick eyebrows and even my eyelashes are double eyelashed. It always looks like I'm wearing fake eyelashes, but I'm oh, not. Wow. Um, but I do have nipple hair and I also have a small happy trail, which I think a lot of people have small happy oh. trail. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is nipple hair never got in my way so much. For my own personal self, I don't look at it and go, ugh. But um, I do find that occasionally, if you are going to have sex with someone new, you find yourself being like, do I pluck these or do I not? Yeah. Like, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you just say you want somebody to be able to like maybe suck on your nipples. And if they're going to do that, uh, you don't want them to like get their braces stuck or whatever is going to happen. <laughs> you know, now I don't have a lot of nipple hair, but I do have quite a bit. And for a moment, I used to, I used to pluck my nipple hair, but now I just don't do it. And <laughs> whenever I go and do shoots, one of the things I find is very interesting is if I'm doing a shoot where I'm topless, they always Photoshop out and airbrush out my nipple oh, hair. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> Even if they leave in leg hair and armpit hair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just like this weird thing where they'll, they'll, it's nipple hair they'll specifically take out. Yeah. And, uh, I had one person be like, are you sure you're not intersex? And I was like, why? And they're like, well, because you have nipple hair. Are you sure you weren't supposed to have like a hairy chest, like a guy, like have pecs? Yeah. And I'm like, don't other people get nipple hair? And yeah. I had to go on this whole Google journey, but it turns out I'm not intersex. <laughs> and also that's not a valid way to determine if someone is intersex. <laughs> Good point. And I, I thought that there was something really wrong with me. Like, this is mm. late teens, early 20s. I thought there was something wrong with me that I had nipple hair. And I also had to go down that rabbit hole of discovering, oh, I'm not the only one. So People don't talk about nipple hair. <laughs> yes. They don't, right? Yeah. Like, it, I, I don't understand why we don't talk about nipple hair more. Because it is such like a natural, it is such a natural thing, you know? Yeah. Um, And I do feel like, it's hard because you can't even post your nipples on. Uh -huh. Yeah. I just got into an, uh, not an argument, but it, 
a classic debate with somebody who was commenting on, I played basketball topless and posted the video on my page with my double D's playing double defense. And <laughs> they were really upset about it. And uh, we had this whole conversation around whether or not breasts should be seen in public. And I asked them what was offensive about the breasts. And they were just like, well, it's just like, you know, they're you, they're a food product thing. And I was like, so should we all hide our food products in public? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, no, it's just that, you know, because liquid is in there and there's a liquid thing. And I'm like, so anyone who sweats should be hidden from public, you know, <laughs> anything that leaks, if your nose leaks, you should be hidden from public. And then eventually they came around and they were like, okay. Fair. I just don't like it. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fair. <laughs> that's okay. That's yeah. okay. We don't, there are going to be things in our life that we don't like, yeah. but I do find that a lot of people probably pluck their nipple hair. They're worried about like perceptions of things. It, you know, the hairless society thing has always blown my mind, but it's fine. <laughs> so the final question. Yes. What belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct yourself on now? Oh, I think that one's such an easy one. I wish I had realized how much more power I have mm. in the dynamics. See, when my parents divorced, I lost a lot of things in my life, you know. And so with people, I didn't want to lose people. And so I've dated a lot of people I'm not really interested in, but I just didn't want to say no or hurt them or let them down. Like, you know, lying and being like, oh, no sex before marriage. I wish I had just known I had a lot more power to just say yeah, I'm just not into that, you, and just been friends with them. Yeah, But I'm glad I had the experiences I had because it really helped me understand what I didn't want in my life. With the star thing, though, that one is definitely, I wish I had known I had more power, I think. Yeah. yeah. Rain, thank you. This has been an incredible conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's been I'm fun. so grateful that you took the time to talk with me. Um what do you want people to know about where to find you, what to look you up before, all that stuff? Uh, yeah, you can find me on any platform, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the whole jam under Rain Dove Model. And this upcoming year, I'm making a really cool production company with a friend of mine. It's going to be called Full Steam Productions. And hopefully you'll see some of our films coming out. Awesome. Something that I love is that you've just opened your calendar for people yeah. to call you for 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is an incredibly generous way to use your time and your energy. Oh, thank you. It's a great way to raise money for causes because it's hard to, if you share GoFundMe, people just don't donate like they used to. So this is a great opportunity and to connect with people. Uh, right before I talked with you, I just talked with somebody who had their booked it for their kid and their kid came on and was like talking about, they're like, I don't know. I'm, I'm she, her, I'm they, them, I'm he, him, and I'm a neo pronoun. And I just, every day I change it. And so we centered and I was like, what are you actually asking for people? Are you asking to be seen as a gender or is there a treatment that you want from people that you, that those genders typically get? And maybe changing your language to anyway, that's a whole thing. Changing I love your, that. Yeah. <laughs> because I was like, you know, maybe you're not asking to be called he, him. Maybe you want people to just tell you the way it is and to not assume that you're too weak. And maybe there's another way to address that. That's not gender based. Anyway, I, I've been having the most amazing conversations and some very anti rain dove people have been on these calls, but I it has been wonderful. Not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, they're like, Oh, 
You say you'll talk to anyone about anything? I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see what you'll talk about. <laughs> and then they come back, and then they come on, and then they test me, and then they're just like, okay, well, have a nice day. <laughs> That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>